Chapter thirty six, part one of Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit by Charles Dickens. Chapter thirty six Tom Pinch departs to seek his fortune. What he finds at starting. Part one. Oh, what a different town Salisbury was in Tom Pinch's eyes, to be sure, when the substantial peck-sniff of his heart melted away into an idle dream. He possessed the same faith in the wonderful shops, the same intensified appreciation of the mystery and wickedness of the place, made the same exalted estimate of its wealth, population, and resources, and yet it was not the old city nor anything like it. He walked into the market while they were getting breakfast ready for him at the inn, and though it was the same market as of old, crowded by the same buyers and sellers, brisk with the same business, noisy with the same confusion of tongues and cluttering of fowls and coops, fair with the same display of rolls of butter, newly made, set forth in linen cloths of dazzling whiteness, green with the same fresh snow of dewy vegetables, dainty with the same array in Higgler's baskets of small shaving-glasses, laces, braces, trouser-straps, and hardware, savoury with the same unstinted show of delicate pig's feet, and pies made precious by the pork that once had walked upon them. Still it was strangely changed to Tom, for in the centre of the market-place he missed a statue he had set up there, as in all other places of his personal resort, and it looked cold and bare without that ornament. The change lay no deeper than this, for Tom was far from being sage enough to know that having been disappointed in one man, it would have been a strictly rational and eminently wise proceeding to have revenged himself upon mankind in general by mistrusting them one and all. Indeed, this piece of justice, though it is upheld by the authority of divers profound poets and honourable men, bears a nearer resemblance to the justice of that good vizier in the thousand and one nights who issues orders for the destruction of all the porters in baghdad because one of that unfortunate fraternity is supposed to have misconducted himself than to any logical not to say christian system of conduct known to the world in later times Tom had so long been used to steep the pecksniff of his fancy in his tea, and spread him out upon his toast, and take him as a relish with his beer, that he made but a poor breakfast on the first morning after his expulsion. Nor did he much improve his appetite for dinner by seriously considering his own affairs, and taking counsel thereon with his friend, the organist's assistant. The organist's assistant gave it as his decided opinion that whatever Tom did he must go to London, for there was no place like it, which may be true in the main, though hardly perhaps in itself a sufficient reason for Tom's going there. But Tom had thought of London before, and had coupled with it thoughts of his sister, and of his old friend John Westlock, whose advice he naturally felt disposed to seek in this important crisis of his fortunes. To London, therefore, he resolved to go, and he went away to the coach-office at once to secure his place. The coach, being already full, he was obliged to postpone his departure until the next night. But even this circumstance had its bright side as well as its dark one, 
for though it threatened to reduce his poor purse with unexpected country charges, it afforded him an opportunity of writing to Mrs. Lupin, and appointing his box to be brought to the old finger-post at the old time, which would enable him to take that treasure with him to the metropolis, and save the expense of its carriage. "'So,' said Tom, comforting himself, "'it's very nearly as broad as it's long.' And it cannot be denied that when he had made up his mind to even this extent— he felt an unaccustomed sense of freedom, a vague and indistinct impression of holiday-making, which was very luxurious. He had his moments of depression and anxiety, and they were, with good reason, pretty numerous. But still, it was wonderfully pleasant to reflect that he was his own master and could plan and scheme for himself. It was startling, thrilling, vast, difficult to understand. It was a stupendous truth, teeming with responsibility and self-distrust. But in spite of all his cares, it gave a curious relish to the viands at the inn, and interposed a dreamy haze between him and his prospects, in which they sometimes showed to magical advantage. In this unsettled state of mind, Tom went once more to bed in the low four-poster, to the same immovable surprise of the effigies of the former landlord and the fat ox, and in this condition passed the whole of the succeeding day. When the coach came round at last, with London blazoned in letters of gold upon the boot, it gave Tom such a turn that he was half disposed to run away. But he didn't do it, for he took his seat upon the box instead, and looking down upon the four greys, felt as if he were another grey himself, or at all events a part of the turnout, and was quite confused by the novelty and splendour of his situation. And really it might have confused a less modest man than Tom, to find himself sitting next that coachman, for of all the swells that ever flourished a whip professionally, he might have been elected emperor. He didn't handle his gloves like another man, but put them on, even when he was standing on the pavement quite detached from the coach, as if the four greys were, somehow or other, at the ends of the fingers. It was the same with his hat. He did things with his hat which nothing but an unlimited knowledge of horses and the wildest freedom of the road could ever have made him perfect in. Valuable little parcels were brought to him with particular instructions, and he pitched them into this hat, and stuck it on again as if the laws of gravity did not admit of such an event as its being knocked off or blown off, and nothing like an accident could befall it. The guard, too. Seventy breezy miles a day were written in his very whiskers. His manners were a canter, his conversation a round trot. He was a fast coach upon a downhill turnpike road. He was all pace. A wagon couldn't have moved slowly with that guard and his key bugle on the top of it. These were all foreshadowings of London, Tom thought, as he sat upon the box and looked about him. Such a coachman and such a guard never could have existed between Salisbury and any other place. The coach was none of your steady-going yokel coaches, but a swaggering, rakish, dissipated London coach up all night and lying by all day, and leading a devil of a life. It cared no more for Salisbury than if it had been a hamlet. It rattled noisily through the best streets, defied the cathedral, took the worst corners sharpest, went cutting in everywhere, making everything get out of its way, and spun along the open country road, blowing a lively defiance out of its key bugle as its last glad parting legacy. It was a charming evening mild and bright, and even with the weight upon his mind which arose out of the immensity and uncertainty of London, 
Tom could not resist the captivating sense of rapid motion through the pleasant air. The four greys skimmed along as if they liked it quite as well as Tom did. The bugle was in as high spirits as the greys. The coachman chimed in sometimes with his voice. The wheels hummed cheerfully in unison. The brasswork on the harness was an orchestra of little bells. And thus, as they went clinking, jingling, rattling smoothly on, the whole concern from the buckles of the leader's coupling reins to the handle of the hind boot was one great instrument of music. Yoho passed hedges, gates, and trees, passed cottages and barns, and people going home from work. Yoho passed donkey chaises, drawn aside into the ditch, and empty carts with rampant horses, whipped up at a bound upon the little water-course, and held by struggling carters close to the five-barred gate, until the coach had passed the narrow turning in the road. Yoho by churches dropped down by themselves in quiet nooks, with rustic burial-grounds about them where the graves are green and daisies sleep, for it is evening, on the bosoms of the dead. Yoho past streams in which the cattle cool their feet, and where the rushes grow, past paddock fences, farms, and rick-yards, past last year's stacks, cut slice by slice away, and showing in the waning light like ruined gables, old and brown. Yoho down the pebbly dip, and through the merry water-splash, and up at a canter to the level road again. Yo-ho! Yo-ho! Was the box there when they came up to the old finger-post? The box! Was Mrs. Lupin herself? Had she turned out magnificently, as a hostess should, in her own chaise-cart? And was she sitting in a mahogany chair, driving her own horse Dragon, who ought to have been called Dumpling, and looking lovely? Did the stage-coach pull up beside her, shaving her very wheel? And even while the guard helped her man up with the trunk, did he send the glad echoes of his bugle careering down the chimneys of the distant peck-sniff, as if the coach expressed its exultation in the rescue of Tom Pinch? "'This is kind indeed,' said Tom, bending down to shake hands with her. "'I didn't mean to give you this trouble.' "'Trouble, Mr. Pinch,' cried the hostess of the dragon." "'Well, it's a pleasure to you, I know,' said Tom, squeezing her hand heartily. "'Is there any news?' The hostess shook her head. "'Say you saw me,' said Tom, "'and that I was very bold and cheerful, and not a bit downhearted, "'and that I entreated her to be the same, "'for all is certain to come right at last. "'Good-bye.' "'You'll write when you get settled, Mr. Pinch,' said Mrs. Lupin. "'When I get settled,' cried Tom, with an involuntary opening of his eyes, "'Oh, yes, I'll write when I get settled. "'Perhaps I had better write before, "'because I may find that it takes a little time to settle myself, "'not having too much money and having only one friend. "'I shall give your love to the friend, by the way. "'You were always great with Mr. Westlock, you know. "'Good-bye.' "'Good-bye,' said Mrs. Lupin, "'hastily producing a basket with a long bottle sticking out of it. "'Take this. Good-bye.' "'Do you want me to carry it to London for you?' cried Tom. She was already turning the chaise-cart round. "'No, no,' said Mrs. Lupin. "'It's only a little something for refreshment on the road. "'Sit fast, Jack. Drive on, sir. All right. Good-bye.' She was a quarter of a mile off before Tom collected himself, and then he was waving his hand lustily, and so was she. "'And that's the last of the old finger-posts,' thought Tom, straining his eyes, "'where I have so often stood to see this very coach go by,' and where I have parted with so many companions. 
I used to compare this coach to some great monster that appeared at certain times to bear my friends away into the world, and now it's bearing me away to seek my fortune. Heaven knows where and how. It made Tom melancholy to picture himself walking up the lane and back to Pecksniff's as of old, and being melancholy he looked downwards at the basket on his knee, which he had for the moment forgotten. "'She is the kindest and most considerate creature in the world,' thought Tom. "'Now I know that she particularly told that man of hers not to look at me, on purpose to prevent my throwing him a shilling. I had it ready for him all the time, and he never once looked towards me. Whereas that man naturally, for I know him very well, would have done nothing but grin and stare. Upon my word, the kindness of people perfectly melts me.' Here he caught the coachman's eye. The coachman winked. "'Remarkable fine woman for her time of life,' said the coachman. "'I quite agree with you,' returned Tom. "'So she is.' "'Finer than many a young un, I mean to say,' observed the coachman, eh? "'Than many a young one,' Tom assented. "'I don't care for em myself when they're too young,' remarked the coachman. This was a matter of taste which Tom did not feel himself called upon to discuss. "'You'll seldom find them possessing correct opinions about refreshment, for instance, when they're too young, you know,' said the coachman. "'A woman must have arrived at maturity before her mind's equal to coming provided with a basket like that.' "'Perhaps you would like to know what it contains,' said Tom, smiling. As the coachman only laughed, and as Tom was curious himself, he unpacked it and put the articles one by one upon the footboard. A cold roast fowl, a packet of ham in slices, a crusty loaf, a piece of cheese, a paper of biscuits, half a dozen apples, a knife, some butter, a screw of salt, and a bottle of old sherry. There was a letter besides which Tom put in his pocket. The coachman was so earnest in his approval of Mrs. Lupin's provident habits, and congratulated Tom so warmly on his good fortune, that Tom felt it necessary, for the lady's sake, to explain that the basket was a strictly platonic basket, and had merely been presented to him in the way of friendship. When he had made the statement with perfect gravity, for he felt it incumbent on him to disabuse the mind of this lax rover of any incorrect impressions on the subject, he signified that he would be happy to share the gifts with him, and proposed that they should attack the basket in a spirit of good fellowship at any time in the course of the night which the coachman's experience and knowledge of the road might suggest as being best adapted to the purpose. From this time they chatted so pleasantly together that although Tom knew infinitely more of unicorns than horses, the coachman informed his friend the guard at the end of the next stage that— Rum as the box-seat looked, he was as good a one to go, in pint of conversation, as ever he'd wished to sit by. Yo-ho, among the gathering shades, making of no account the deep reflections of the trees, but scampering on through light and darkness, all the same as if the light of London fifty miles away were quite enough to travel by, and some to spare. Yo-ho, beside the village green, where cricket-players linger yet, and every little indentation made in the fresh grass by bat or wicket, ball or player's foot sheds out its perfume on the night away with four fresh horses from the bald-faced stag where topers congregate about the door admiring and the last team with traces hanging loose go roaming off towards the pond until observed and shouted after by a dozen throats while volunteering boys pursue them now with a clattering of hoofs and striking out of fiery sparks 
across the old stone bridge and down again into the shadowy road and through the open gate and far away away into the wold yoho yoho behind there stop that bugle for a moment come creeping over to the front along the coach roof guard and make one at this basket not that we slacken in our pace the while not we we rather put the bits of blood upon their metal for the greater glory of the snack ah it is long since this bottle of old wine was brought into contact with the mellow breath of night you may depend and rare good stuff it is to wet a bugler's whistle with only try it don't be afraid of turning up your finger bill another pull now take your breath and try the bugle bill there's music there's a tone over the hills and far away indeed yo ho the skittish mare is all alive to-night yo ho yo ho see the bright moon high up before we know it making the earth reflect the objects on its breast like water hedges trees low cottages church steeples blighted stumps and flourishing young slips have all grown vain upon the sudden and mean to contemplate their own fair images till morning the poplars yonder rustle that their quivering leaves may see themselves upon the ground not so the oak trembling does not become him and he watches himself in his stout old burly steadfastness without the motion of a twig the moss-grown gate ill-poised upon its creaking hinges crippled and decayed swings to and fro before its glass like some fantastic dowager while our own ghostly likeness travels on yo ho yo ho through ditch and brake upon the ploughed land and the smooth along the steep hillside and steeper wall as if it were a phantom hunter clouds too and a mist upon the hollow not a dull fog that hides it but a light airy gauze-like mist which in our eyes of modest admiration gives a new charm to the beauties it has spread before as real gauze has done ere now and would again so please you though we were the pope yo ho why now we travel like the moon herself hiding this minute in a grove of trees next minute in a patch of vapour emerging now upon our broad clear course withdrawing now but always dashing on our journey is a counterpart of hers yo ho a match against the moon the beauty of the night is hardly felt when day comes rushing up yo ho two stages and the country roads are almost changed to a continuous street yo ho past market gardens rows of houses villas crescents terraces and squares past wagons coaches carts past early workmen late stragglers drunken men and sober carriers of loads past brick and mortar in its every shape and in among the rattling pavements where a jaunty seat upon a coach is not so easy to preserve yo ho down countless turnings and through countless mazy ways until an old inn-yard is gained and tom pinch getting down quite stunned and giddy is in london five minutes before the time too said the driver as he received his fee of tom upon my word said tom i should not have minded very much if we had been five hours after it for at this early hour i don't know where to go or what to do with myself don't they expect you then inquired the driver who said tom why them returned the driver his mind was so clearly running on the assumption of tom's having come to town to see an extensive circle of anxious relations and friends that it would have been pretty hard work to undeceive him tom did not try 
he cheerfully evaded the subject, and going into the inn fell fast asleep before a fire in one of the public rooms opening from the yard. When he awoke, the people in the house were all astir, so he washed and dressed himself, to his great refreshment after the journey, and, it being by that time eight o'clock, went forth at once to see his old friend John. John Westlock lived in Furnival's Inn, High Holborn, which was within a quarter of an hour's walk of Tom's starting point, but seemed a long way off by reason of his going two or three miles out of the straight road to make a short cut. When at last he arrived outside John's door, two stories up, he stood faltering with his hand upon the knocker, and trembled from head to foot, for he was rendered very nervous by the thought of having to relate what had fallen out between himself and Pecksniff, and he had a misgiving that John would exult fearfully in the disclosure. "'But it must be made,' thought Tom, sooner or later, and I had better get it over. "'Rat-tat!' "'I'm afraid that's not a London knock,' thought Tom. "'It didn't sound bold. Perhaps that's the reason why nobody answers the door.' It is quite certain that nobody came, and that Tom stood looking at the knocker, wondering whereabouts in the neighbourhood a certain gentleman resided, who was roaring out to somebody, "'Come in!' with all his might. "'Bless my soul,' thought Tom at last. "'Perhaps he lives here and is calling to me. I never thought of that. Can I open the door from the outside, I wonder?' "'Yes, to be sure I can.' "'To be sure he could, by turning the handle. "'And to be sure, when he did turn it, "'the same voice came rushing out, crying, "'Why don't you come in? Come in, do you hear? "'What are you standing there for?' "'Quite violently.' "'Tom stepped from the little passage "'into the room from which these sounds proceeded, "'and had barely caught a glimpse of a gentleman "'in a dressing-gown and slippers, "'with his boots beside him ready to put on, "'sitting at his breakfast with a newspaper in his hand, when the said gentleman, at the imminent hazard of oversetting his tea-table, made a plunge at Tom and hugged him. "'Why, Tom, my boy!' cried the gentleman. "'Tom!' "'How glad I am to see you, Mr. Westlock,' said Tom Pinch, shaking both his hands and trembling more than ever. "'How kind you are!' "'Mr. Westlock,' repeated John, "'what do you mean by that, Pinch? "'You have not forgotten my Christian name, I suppose.' "'No, John, no, I have not forgotten,' said Thomas Pinch. "'Good gracious me, how kind you are!' "'I never saw such a fellow in all my life,' cried John. "'What do you mean by saying that over and over again? "'What did you expect me to be, I wonder? "'Here, sit down, Tom, and be a reasonable creature. "'How are you, my boy? I am delighted to see you.' "'And I am delighted to see you,' said Tom. "'It's mutual, of course,' returned Tom. "'It always was, I hope.' "'If I had known you had been coming, Tom, I would have had something for breakfast. "'I would rather have such a surprise than the best breakfast in the world myself. "'But yours is another case, and I have no doubt you are as hungry as a hunter. "'You must make out as well as you can, Tom, and we'll recompense ourselves at dinner-time. "'You take sugar, I know. I recollect the sugar at Pecksniff's. "'Ha, <laughs> How is Pecksniff? When did you come to town? "'Do begin at something or other, Tom.' "'There are only scraps here, but they are not at all bad. "'Boar's head potted. "'Try it, Tom. Make a beginning, whatever you do. "'What an old blade you are! I am delighted to see you.' "'While he delivered himself of these words in a state of great commotion, "'John was constantly running backwards and forwards to and from the closet, "'bringing out all sorts of things in pots, "'scooping extraordinary quantities of tea out of the caddy, "'dropping French rolls into his boots, 
pouring hot water over the butter, and making a variety of similar mistakes without disconcerting himself in the least. "'There,' said John, sitting down for the fiftieth time, and instantly starting up again, to make some other addition to the breakfast. "'Now we are as well off as we are likely to be till dinner. And now let us have the news, Tom. Imprimis. How's Pecksniff?' "'I don't know how he is,' was Tom's grave answer. John Westlock put the teapot down and looked at him in astonishment. "'I don't know how he is,' said Thomas Pinch. "'and saving that I wish him no ill, I don't care. "'I have left him, John, I have left him for ever. "'Voluntarily? "'Why, no, for he dismissed me. "'But I had first found out that I was mistaken in him, "'and I could not have remained with him under any circumstances. "'I grieve to say that you were right in your estimate of his character. "'It may be a ridiculous weakness, John, "'but it has been very painful and bitter to me to find this out, "'I do assure you.' Tom had no need to direct that appealing look towards his friend, in mild and gentle deprecation of his answering with a laugh. John Westlock would have as soon thought of striking him down upon the floor. "'It was all a dream of mine,' said Tom, "'and it is over. "'I'll tell you how it happened at some other time. "'Bear with my folly, John. "'I do not just now like to think or speak about it.' "'I swear to you, Tom,' returned his friend, with great earnestness of manner, after remaining silent for a few moments, that when I see, as I do now, how deeply you feel this, I don't know whether to be glad or sorry that you have made the discovery at last. I reproach myself with the thought that I ever jested on the subject. I ought to have known better. "'My dear friend,' said Tom, extending his hand, "'it is very generous and gallant in you to receive me and my disclosure in this spirit.' It makes me blush to think that I should have felt a moment's uneasiness as I came along. You can't think what a weight is lifted off my mind, said Tom, taking up his knife and fork again, and looking very cheerful. I shall punish the boar's head dreadfully. The host, thus reminded of his duties, instantly betook himself to piling up all kinds of irreconcilable and contradictory viands in Tom's plate, and a very capital breakfast Tom made, and very much the better for it, Tom felt. "'That's all right,' said John, after contemplating his visitor's proceedings with infinite satisfaction. "'Now, about our plans. You are going to stay with me, of course. Where's your box?' "'It's at the inn,' said Tom. "'I didn't intend—' "'Never mind what you didn't intend,' John Westlock interposed. "'What you did intend is more to the purpose. You intended in coming here to ask my advice, did you not, Tom?' "'Certainly.' "'And to take it when I gave it to you?' "'Yes,' rejoined Tom, smiling. "'If it were good advice, which, being yours, I have no doubt it will be. "'Very well. Then don't be an obstinate old humbug in the outset, Tom, "'or I shall shut up shop and dispense none of that invaluable commodity. "'You are on a visit to me. I wish I had an organ for you, Tom. "'So do the gentlemen downstairs and the gentlemen overhead, I have no doubt,' was Tom's reply. "'Let me see. In the first place you will wish to see your sister this morning,' pursued his friend, "'and, of course, you will like to go there alone. "'I'll walk part of the way with you "'and see about a little business of my own "'and meet you here again in the afternoon. "'Put that in your pocket, Tom. "'It's only the key of the door. "'If you come home first, you'll want it.' "'Really,' said Tom, "'quartering oneself upon a friend in this way. "'Why, there are two keys,' interposed John Westlock. "'I can't open the door with them both at once, can I? 
"'What a ridiculous fellow you are, Tom. Nothing particular you'd like for dinner, is there?' "'Oh, dear, no,' said Tom. "'Very well, then you may as well leave it to me. Have a glass of cherry brandy, Tom?' "'Not a drop.' "'What remarkable chambers these are,' said Pinch. "'There's everything in them. "'Bless your soul, Tom. Nothing but a few little bachelor contrivances.' the sort of impromptu arrangements that might have suggested themselves to Philip Quarrel or Robinson Crusoe, that's all. What do you say? Shall we walk? By all means, cried Tom, as soon as you like. End of chapter 36, part 1